0: The sound system just doesn't like us today, but we'll worship Jesus and preach the Bible either way. How about that? All right, so grab your Bible, turn to 2 Corinthians. While you get there, a few words of structure. This is First Sunday, so we will have communion at the end of service together, and then we will have um, a slight little special thing after that that won't be long, so um, we've hopefully staged the service in such a way that we don't run on into lunchtime and get out at the usual time, but uh, we'll see what happens. So with all that said, we are at this point still following our normal pattern, and so grab 2 Corinthians, going to be turning to chapter 6, and in a few minutes we'll pick up in verse 14. So just as a side note, and as introduction, I guess at the same time, um, we systematically study the scriptures. So that means I don't just pick a topic and say, hey, let's find verses that talk about that topic. We started verse 1 in 2 Corinthians, and we will quit 2 Corinthians when we get to the last verse of Corinthians, and then we'll pick a different book, and we'll study through the book. So the advantage of that is sometimes you end up going to topics that you probably would never randomly pick if you were working you know, just picking topics on your own. So kind of, that's the reason we talked about homosexuality on Mother's Day one time. And then I think the next year on Mother's Day, we talked about divorce. It just planned out that way. You know, I think one Father's Day was when we went through singleness. So I don't remember, you know, just things happen like that. Today is not a particular holiday or anything, but we're going to talk about a passage that feels out of place relative to everything we've read in Second Corinthians so far. In fact, If we removed all of the verses we look at this morning from 2 Corinthians, you probably wouldn't notice they were gone. Uh, You would read right through the book seamlessly. Now, some people, and I don't think this is the case, and I'll make an argument for that, this seems so out of place that some people think that somebody added this into the letter of Paul after Paul wrote it because it seems so out of place. There's just a huge parenthetical chains of subject seemingly going on in 1 Corinthians. Some people think Paul references a letter he wrote to them, and he's responding, saying, you misunderstood what I meant. Some people think this is the letter, just a little snippet from that letter, that was misunderstood. Now, it is related to that topic, and it'll make sense as we dive in. So, let's reset the stage, and the argument that's happening in 2 Corinthians And that's going to help us understand why this particular piece fits in where it does and where he's going with the letter. So let's start with a little bit of basic Bible trivia. 2 Corinthians is written to a group of people living in what city? Corinth. Very good. So we call them the Corinthians. Excellent. But not everyone in Corinth is the audience of the letter. What particular group within Corinth is the audience of the letter? The Christian church, the saints, as Paul would say. And What biblical character writes this letter? Paul. Very good. Y'all are doing great today. So Paul writes this letter. It's called 2 Corinthians, and what number letter is this that Paul has written to the church? Fourth. Okay, it's actually the fourth letter he's written. It's only the second one in Scripture. We actually have two and four. We don't have the first letter. The second letter is 1 Corinthians. Then there's the severe letter that we don't have, and then there's the fourth letter, which is the one... He's writing now. So let's just remind ourselves about the basic context. We go over this every week, so some of you can probably just get up and tell me the background of 2 Corinthians, and if you can, I will feel like I have one. It's like, excellent, you know how to read this book now. But let's just recap it quickly, just so we all kind of have a general gist of what's going on with this letter. Paul planted the church, then he left the church. Presumably in, in good times, things are going well. He finds out stuff is not going well. He writes a harsh letter to them. Um, second, uh, First Corinthians, he writes a letter to them. There's a lot of, you know, do this better, you're not doing this right. And almost he covers every topic. Marriage, um, singleness, Lord's Supper, spiritual gifts, division in the body. Like every category you could think of in a typical church, Corinth fails. They're not doing well. And he writes this letter. And over the course of time, their response to this letter is poor. It doesn't go well at all. And some other groups come into Corinth and start leading the church in a new direction against the Apostle Paul. Now, it's important to note that this new direction isn't just a change in leader. It's not a change in, well, I used to like John MacArthur, and now I prefer John Piper. It's, it's not that kind of thing. It's not just a shift in preference of individual. Instead of Paul, let's take this other guy. It's also, at the same time, a shift in the gospel. That's how Paul interprets this. To follow Paul is to follow the gospel of Jesus Christ. To follow these other guys is to change the gospel and follow something else. Anytime you change the gospel, you're also going to change your definition of Christianity. Something's going to be altered. Something will not be the same. And so, as Paul's dealing with their not liking him... At the same time, he has to deal with the theological changes in the gospel that are happening in the church. So Paul decides to go to Corinth, settle things once and for all. He gets to Corinth. How does that meeting go? Do you remember? Positively or negatively? Like double negatively. It goes horribly wrong. The church basically runs him out and says, Paul, we're going with the other guys not you. They've got a lot of criticism of Paul. I mean, look at Paul. Clearly, God's not on his team. Everything is going wrong in Paul's life. And if you love Jesus, everything goes right in your life. Well, that's not biblical, but that's their argument. And so Paul leaves. Some time goes by. Paul writes the one we call the severe letter. I wish we had the severe letter. We don't. And then he gets word, finally, from Titus, coming back from Corinth, that the church at Corinth Has repented to God, consequently, also then to Paul. So Paul is on team Jesus, and these other super apostles are on team some form of idolatry being mixed with Christianity. That's the two teams. So to turn to Paul is to turn to Christ. They're the same for him. To turn to Paul is to turn to the gospel. So as he's writing 2 Corinthians, the church has repented, they've turned to Paul. And now he writes this letter. He's on his way there. He's going to have a pretty fruitful ministry when he gets there. He'll write the book of Romans when he gets back to Corinth. But before he gets there, he sends this letter to them to deal with that repentance. So for one, we see in the letter he's excited. He's been comforted. He had this really deep, dark low to the point where he says he despaired of life only so that God could teach him that he raises men from the dead. But he had that experience because of Corinth. But now he's been comforted, comforted by the repentance of the church, comforted by the coming of Titus, comforted by God who comforts the afflicted. And he's writing this letter in joy and gratefulness and thankfulness. But some of the arguments they had against the Apostle Paul made sense. And so he has to defend his ministry. He has to defend, actually, his suffering he has to defend his weakness. But second to that, now remember, if they're believing a slightly different gospel, then that means they're changing what Christians act like. So he also has to correct not just their perception of him, but their application of the gospel in their daily lives. So he can't just say, open your heart to me, which is how he ended um, where we were in chapter 6. He's saying, I have not put an obstacle anyone's way. My heart is open wide, you open your heart wide to me, receive me as a true apostle of God. That being said, there's two main issues we need to address. One is negative, one is positive. Negative, goes along with this, is going to be the category of, generally speaking, sexual immorality. Now, you may remember 1 Corinthians. Does 1 Corinthians have anything to say about sexual immorality in the church at Corinth? Chapters worth. Chapters worth to say about sexual immorality. Paul tells them to excommunicate a guy over a grotesque sexual immorality in the church. He tells them to flee from this. He has to get on to them for um, going to prostitutes um, in pagan temples. He gets on to them for a lot of what we might say obvious misconduct in the first letter. Well, what's going on Is this false gospel that they've started to believe in, that they've been leaning towards, away from Paul, permitted them to be a little more engaged with the world than the true gospel permitted them to be? And here's how they did it. And you'll see this brought up in the passage we're about to read. They had what we call, they didn't call it yet then, this is us looking back on history, we call it this, a slightly Gnostic view of the world. And here's how the Gnostic view works. It actually still slips into Christianity, every couple generations, we go through a slump of this again. And it's the idea that flesh is bad, spirit is good, and the whole goal of Christianity is to shed the flesh when you die and just have spiritual existence with God for the rest of eternity. What's wrong with that picture? What's it missing? The resurrection. And the resurrection emphasizes what specifically? The flesh body. Creation was good. God created everything in six days. And what was his response? That's good. That is very good. It's wonderful. There's nothing wrong with flesh. There's nothing wrong with body. There's nothing wrong with creation. God created creation. and It is a good thing. But here's what happens if you start differentiating between the spirit and the flesh. You allow them to be different. You can be pure in spirit. It doesn't really matter about the flesh. The flesh can do whatever. It's eventually going to pass away and die. Don't worry about the flesh. Just worry about the spirit. Consequently, you know, if the flesh sins a little bit, as long as the spirit's not in it, you can do kind of a fleshly sin, just keep your spirit out of it, and it's okay. Now, when we word it like that, how does that sound? It's stupid. There's no way that makes any sense. But if you really want to do a particular sin that's of the flesh, your brain has this Superpower. You all have this. You can take anything and you can make it okay if you're standing in the right position and you cover one eye. That's totally fine. See, I see this picture clearly. There's nothing wrong with that. Oh, let me change the angle. Yep, clearly, there's nothing wrong with that thing as long as I do it in this particular way. So that's kind of what's that's a simple version of what's happening in Corinth. So because they've turned from Paul. They've turned to a slightly, and our word was Gnostic gospel, separating flesh and spirit, flesh, bad, spirit, good. With that worldview, it allowed them to invite sexual sins into their life more freely. Well, think about their Greek culture. Where does sexual morality play in Greek culture in the first century? In fact, when we use the word Greek and talk about the college experience, they're probably the same, okay? Okay. I'll just use that as our illustration. That's part of their daily life. In fact, it's part of their religious life. One of the main ways you worship, many of their gods had some form of sexual morality built into the system. So You can imagine how easy it was to get converts. That's how it worked for them. This is part of the system. So the church as a whole, who already struggled with this because they're Corinthian, they're Greek, their pagan background. It's part of their system. They struggle with it anyway because it's where they came from. They were offered a version of the gospel that let them do those things. Well, I can get Jesus and my list of sins at the same time. Paul's having to say, now that you're coming back to me, i.e. coming back to the gospel, i.e. coming back to Christ, you also have to walk away from these things you have entered into partnership with. So that's where we're at in 1 Corinthians. Now, we'll see, he didn't explicitly say the word sexual immorality in this passage, but just to show you, if you want to flip over real quick, at the end of chapter 12, you'll see very clearly what he's worried about. So he spends the rest of the letter dealing with three things. One, I'm not a bad apostle, I'm a good apostle. In some version of the statement, he's defending his ministry Or he's telling them to flee sexual morality, or he's telling them to prepare themselves for the offering that he's collecting to take Jerusalem. But you can see his fear at the end of chapter 12. He says, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier. That's what he dealt with in the first letter. And have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. Well, what's he worried about happening when he gets back to Corinth? That they've come back to him, but not come back to Christ. Because he'll feel like he's labored in vain. If they come back to Paul without coming back to Christ. In what particular sense? Sexual morality. This is his fear. So, with that in mind, he's made this plea for them to open their hearts to him. And now we dive into 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14. I have heard this verse quoted many a time, maybe not as popular as, um, do not judge. Um, that one's the most popular verse of scripture quoted by non-believers, is do not judge. They don't know the rest of that paragraph. It comes from Matthew chapter 7, and if you don't know it, you should probably go read it. This one is also out there, and it gets quoted usually in the wrong context, but uh, we'll walk through it and see. I even heard it as recently as Thursday quoted in a very common misinterpretation of this passage. So let's dive in. What I'm going to do a little differently than normal, instead of verse by verse, I am going to read the whole chunk so that you see the big picture of what he's saying. Then we're going to kind of unpack it, detail, line, or idea at a time. So we're going to read from chapter 6, verse 14, through chapter 7, verse 1. Let me throw in the common side note. Chapters and verse numbers are not inspired. God did not put those in there. We did. Fairly recently, actually, Churches, most of church history, they didn't have these. Paul did not write chapter 6. He just started writing. Have you ever written an email? Did you put chapters in it? Now, some of you are weird, okay? And if you put chapters, you're weird, okay? You don't do that. Paul didn't do that. So when we jump into chapter 7, that's probably where the true paragraph break would be because then the parentheses closes in verse 2. So let's read 14 through seven one. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement, of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. All right, so he quotes the Old Testament for half of that section, right? You saw in my translation, basically all the verses, or half of 16 through 18, all in quotation block. Everybody see that in their text? Paul is doing something interesting here. I'm going to call that a preacher quote. You ever heard a preacher start quoting the Bible, and they started in one place, and then they quoted like eight different scriptures by the time they got to the end that weren't all in the same place, jumping all over the Bible? That's so what Paul does. The first part, I will make my dwelling among them, direct quotation from Leviticus. And then when it says, therefore, go out from the mist, he totally left Leviticus, jumped over to Isaiah. He gets a few verses of Isaiah, and then the rest of it, um, is all random statements scattered throughout all the Old Testament, but never found in that form. So every word comes from the Old Testament, just not necessarily in the same paragraph. You follow what I'm saying? So paul that's Paul for you. He starts with a very hard quote, and then a second direct quote, then biblical concepts scattered throughout the entire Old Testament, and he closes with saying, uh, says the Lord Almighty. He said all of that. All over the place, throughout the entire Old Testament. Here's what I'm getting at. Paul is not quoting just a single verse of Scripture to back up his point. What's he really done by making this, in a sense, convoluted quotation? What is he doing? He's taking the entire system of the Old Testament. He started with a hard verse, another direct quotation, and it's like, you know, the whole thing says this. The whole Old Testament, in some fashion, is making this point. And what is the particular point from the Old Testament that God is making? That he took his people, and his people being what people in the Old Testament? The Jews, the Israelites, the Hebrews. He took that group of people, and he set them apart. Now, what's the word for that, to be set apart? Holy. He took that group of people and made them holy. Now, we use the word holy in a lot of different ways. In the Old Testament, it has two very Distinct, under the same umbrella, meanings. One of those is designated, and the other is clean or pure. Same umbrella, though. Here's the idea. God claims ownership over a group of people and says, you belong to me. Does that make sense? That fo- therefore, they are holy, set apart, designated for him. So at my house, we have a table and there is a seat at that table that belongs to me. You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about? I sit at the same spot at my table, unless we're having Bible study because I like to be in the center. But other than that, I sit at the head, or what I call the head. You know, how do you know which side is the head of the table? It's the side I'm sitting on. Okay, sorry. All right, so there's a designated spot. Was that too far? I'm sorry. So there's a designated spot that I claim ownership over. And now, unfortunately, I don't get to have a recliner. But if I went to my dad's house, there's a recliner in the living room. And I can sit in the recliner if he's not in the room. My dad walks in, even as an adult, if I'm sitting in that recliner and my dad walks in the room, you know what happens? I pop up and I go get on the couch. Not nearly as comfortable as a recliner, but what's special about that recliner? It's designated. It's set apart. He might as well put a name plaque over it, belongs to me. That's the idea. That's what holy means in the Old Testament, and God makes that declaration over the Hebrew people. He called Abraham, he singled him out, then he singled out specifically Isaac, then he singled out Jacob, but then he included all the descendants of Jacob In the covenant, by the time we get to Moses, he singled out the people through circumcision, through adherence to the law. Furthermore, he singled them out by saving them from Egypt, led them into the wilderness, gave them the commandments. And in those commandments, it said, you belong to me. You are my people. You will not be like them. You will be like me. So first part of the statement holy meant you belong to me. Second part is Therefore, you behave the way I say. Now, he gave them a lot of interesting rules. Some of them I'm very glad are not applicable today, one of which being, I can eat bacon. They couldn't. But God separated them and made them distinct from the people around them through, and we call that holiness. Now, so we can mean holiness in the sense of designated, belonging to God, but we can also use holiness to mean acting a particular way, meaning acting the way God requires his designated people to act. Now, we don't have time to go into all the differences between the Old Testament and New Testament. We know that there's been some changes, this fulfillment of the Old Testament, meaning there's things in the Old Testament we don't practice today, but we are still under the same obligation as God's designated people to belong to him and to act differently. So first blank in your outline, Christians are called to be set apart in Christ. This is still how God does it. Now there's some changes. In the Old Testament, God designated his people by clumping them together and placing them in the middle of the known world. Have you ever thought about where they were? I mean, you have to go through the Fertile Crescent. You have to pass through Israel to go between any of the major world powers in the ancient day. God took his people, set them apart, and instead of putting them out in the desert, somewhere where no one would see them, he put them right in the middle of everything to be seen. Well, let's just transition that idea to the New Testament. He doesn't do that geographically to us. It's more like he designates us as holy, as though we're seeds and then scatters us across the world as we grow as little microcosms of that. We're little local churches, local set-apart holy things that demonstrate that there's a difference between what belongs to God, what is His, what acts like Him, and what does not. So that's the theology going on here. So when he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, he's saying, do not get into partnership between things that are in God's designated circle and things that are outside of God's designated circle. That's the idea here. We'll unpack that more in a moment. Let's jump down to the last verse again, 7-1. It says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. So both in a physical sense and in a spiritual sense, we need to be distinct from the world. We need to be, we would call it, holy. We need to have holy lives. Cleanse ourselves and be holy. So let's unpack that in a couple of ways. So number one, he says, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Fear of God. Now we like to downplay this word and say we only mean respect. We don't only mean respect. All right, read the Old Testament. This is where the lingo comes from. God saved his people out of Egypt, led them to the Mount Sinai. They received the Ten Commandments, and when they disobey God and act inappropriately in his holiness, what happens to those people? Many of them die. One time the earth opens up, swallows some, Plague breaks out from time to time. Even Aaron, the high priest, his sons, trying to please the Lord, offer a a foreign sacrifice, something that's not required in the law. And how does God respond? Kills him dead. Fast forward a few years, the Ark of the Covenant, being moved by David to a new location. The cart stumbles. Uzzah reaches out to touch the Ark. You know what happens. God kills him on the spot. He is holy and he is to be feared. In fact, the concept of the book of Leviticus could be summed up as God saying, here, if you do these behaviors, I won't break out and kill you when I show up. Why? Why is it like this? I want you to see a story. Real quick, you're familiar with this in Isaiah chapter 6. Many of you No songs based on this chapter, and we're just not going to unpack it completely, but just to see the basic idea in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to the other and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts, or literally the Lord of armies, God in his might. Revealed to Isaiah, the prophet. How does Isaiah respond? Oh, I'm dead. No way I survive what's about to happen. Then the most beautiful thing happens. It says, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken from the tong- with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, "Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin." is atoned for. I don't know if Isaiah knew yet what that was going to be a reference to. He prophesies in chapter 53, about the 52 and 53, about the suffering servant who would be broken for all of us who would bear our iniquity because the blood of Christ would cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so when he tells us here to cleanse ourselves, I want to make sure you understand that that's coming after the fact that he has saved. When God told his people to be holy, and Leviticus, what had he just done for them? He brought them out of Egypt. God always saves, then gives command. That is always his order, because it's never based on, well, you do my commands enough, I'll save you. That's not how God operates. He saves so that He can set us free to holiness. In fact, the specific verse, I will make a dwelling among them that came from Leviticus, references it's I who set you free from the yoke of Egypt, therefore serve me. The only reason they can do that is because God has acted first. And so when we say cleanse yourself, first and foremost, look to Christ. You feel the. Guiltiness of being unholy before the Lord, you know your sins. There's not a soul in this room that could sit here and say, I can't think of a single sin I've committed this week. If you haven't, if you can't think of anything, it's because you have no spiritual perception at all. We fall before the Lord daily, probably during this sermon you've had evil thoughts. Today when you woke up, you've had to deal with the flesh. You have had the battle against sin. And too often we fell in that battle. Too often we invite sin and Satan and idol worship into our lives in ways that are unholy, ungodly, evil and wicked. And yet God pours out his grace on us. First John tells us when we sin, he wrote these things in order that we wouldn't sin. But when you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is our, our big fancy word propitiation. The wrath of God absorbed through the blood of Christ on the cross on your behalf. God cleanses us. Our response to that, a fear of His power, His work should push us into holiness. Our holiness is fueled by the fear of God. Positive and negative. The fear of God. In a positive sense and in a negative sense, God will Bring us into holiness by the strength of his power. Now, let's put this together in some application for today. And it's noon, so we'll we'll make this quickly. Let's fill in the last blank, and let me give you some examples. So because of our call to holiness, there are certain lifestyles that are off-limits to believers. All right, so let's just go back to the first verse, which is verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. That is almost always quoted in reference to what human relationship? Marriage. That is, to be clear, a proper application of this text. He is unquestionably primarily talking about sexual morality here. But when he says, do not be unequally yoked, now you see on the bulletin, or you see that picture of the yoke. Right? And it was very clever. That Rob found one like this. You see how the the part that holds the neck those are very, very different sized animals getting yoked together. So that would be an unequal yoke. Follow that? So what are the two things by this passage? Battery died. Sorry. It's red. Y'all can hear me we go for it? All right, so according to this passage, the two things that should not be yoked together are what? Sin and righteousness. All right, sin and righteousness. Really, let's get down to the end of verse 15. Believer, unbeliever. A lot of people want to quote the Old Testament and say the Old Testament cared a lot about interracial marriage. No. It cared a lot about interfaith marriage. That was the issue. That is the issue here. Believer, unbeliever, no. No go. That does not work. What partnership has a child of Satan with a child of God? That's the idea here. Absolutely not. Those cannot be yoked together. Happens all the time. It's amazing to me that people would even not consider this. How could you possibly get along in marriage if you have different faiths? This isn't possible. This does not work. In fact, it is considered unholy. But let's go more than that. Really, what this application would be is there should be no partnership with that of Christ And that of the world. Now, we have a tendency to wet things together. We like to baptize things into Christianity. It's coming up. We're going to have an election season again. And we, as Christians, should vote. We should voice our opinions. We should engage in politics. We should participate in the system. We should absolutely do all of those things. But we need to do it in a way where we are not partnering that of the world with that of Christ. That is a big deal as we move forward. And it works with any movement, anything going on in the world. We cannot partner together with the things of the world. Now, there's a possible misinterpretation. Paul dealt with it, actually, in the first letter to Corinth. He was talking about sexual immorality. And he said, you misunderstood my letter. When I told you not to hang out with sexually immoral people, I didn't mean you couldn't hang out with unbelievers. Because if that was the case, what would you have to do? You have to leave. You have to get out of the world. You have to not be there. But you cannot, under any circumstances, hang out with a so-called believer who's actually worshiping a false idol through sexual immorality. You've got to kick that person out of the church, out of your life, out of your fellowship. Those do not go together. So let me be clear. He's not saying we can't have contact with the outside world. What are we supposed to do? What did Paul say in chapter 5? What's our relationship to the world? We are ambassadors. This is our role to preach the gospel, to live the gospel, to portray the gospel. But there are certain types of relationships we cannot enter into. There are certain sorts of lifestyles Christians cannot have. We cannot be unequally yoked with the world in those partnerships. There are certain jobs, certain places, certain things we cannot do in good faith because by doing them we are saying jesus participates in that jesus no. does that that's how he makes the argument in first corinthians about sleeping with the prostitute because you are a member of christ and by going into that prostitute you are saying jesus just did that you're showing the world that jesus is doing that work now think about that in your holiness is that the image you want to portray to the world That sin you do one you struggle with, the one you don't want to talk about, when you're doing that, you're saying, that Jesus condones this. You're not saying that with your mouth. You're saying it with your body. But let's bring holiness to completion. Fear of the Lord. Now a common response to talking about holiness is guilt. Because we all know, every person in the room knows quite well that they're not as holy as they ought to be. Maybe you're winning more in the body than you are in the spirit. Maybe you're winning more in the spirit than you are in the body, but you know there is a the fire. The you know there is a clingliness. you know there are thoughts. And you say, well, maybe I hadn't done some particular action, but then you read the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus says, well, if you thought about it, you lusted for it. It happens in here. We've already got the impurity in you. <coughs> well, Jesus has given us an ordinance to obey on a regular basis that reminds us of the purity we have in Christ, and we call it the Lord's Supper. We don't get re-saved, we don't get re-forgiven when we take the Lord's Supper together, but what we do is celebrate the once-for-all sacrifice that our high priest made of himself in the holy of holies, in the true tabernacle that is not made with hands, in the throne room of God's kingdom in heaven itself, God has sacrificed for our sin. He has made us holy before him. By the power of that grace, he leads us into holiness. The only way we can cleanse ourselves is by resting in fear, resting in the power, resting in ultimately the sovereignty of our God. We're going to take communion together. I'm going to ask the ushers to go ahead and begin to pass that out. And I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians, just a few chapters before Paul's instructions about giving the Lord's Supper. So, this is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11. For when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So we say this every time, but it can never be said too often. When we come to the Lord's table and we examine our hearts, we're not just looking for sin. If you look in your heart today for sin, you will find it. No question. What we're looking for instead is your state of repentance. What is your attitude before the Lord today? Is it one of confession? Is it one of humility? Is it one of submission? Is it one of obedience? Is it one of humble faithfulness? Or are you holding on to it in pride in arrogance and greed and conceit, in a form of idolatry, holding on to your own strength, your own righteousness, or are you letting it go before the Lord who cleanses us of all unrighteousness? We're going to examine our hearts this morning for a few moments going to take a moment of silence as I continue to pass it out. I just want you to pray before the Lord. Confess your sins, knowing that He is faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins, all of our trespasses and iniquities by the blood we are about to celebrate. So let's go to the Lord in prayer in a moment of silence.